Good to see you all this morning, and for those of you who are joining us online, in case you don't know who I am, my name is Dan, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, this morning we are going to be closing out our series that we started at the beginning of this year um, called the, the Seven Challenges of the Church, in which we have been looking at the seven messages in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of the seven messages to the seven churches in that book of Revelation. And um, I, I just say this as an aside, okay? Um, the book of Revelation can be an incredibly confusing book, amen? And someday I'm going to preach on it. Uh, but it's not today. Um, let me just say this, that I believe that the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was written to were not confused about what the Apostle John was writing to them. And while we may be confused by it, while we may have certain questions and may have developed certain ideas of the end times and that sort of thing, I, I'm pretty confident that those seven churches were not confused by what John was writing to them. So someday, church, someday, brothers and sisters, I'm going to talk on Revelation, but it is not today, okay? Uh, we're going to conclude this series, uh, and we're going to start a new series next week. Pastor Weezy is going to start us off with the uh, book of James next week. Um, oh yeah, now you're excited about, about James. Yeah, let me just give you a little hint about James. Martin Luther did not like the book of James because the book of James was all about works and all about working out our faith with fear and trembling. And for a guy who came out of the experience he came out of and said it was all grace alone, he believed that the book of James should not even have been in the Bible. But luckily, he wasn't on that committee that made that decision. So I'm just saying it is a great book. It is a controversial book. And Pastor Weezy gets to kick it off next week. As we work through that book, yes. So, um, as we have been going through this series, we have been looking at, so far, six challenges. We're going to look at the last challenge today of what, of what can face churches, including our own here at Summit Ridge Community Church. And we've been exploring, in, in, in many ways, the importance of being a part of a church. Um, I'm going to share a quote with you in just a second, but I, I was going through in, his, in my research for this. I came across another quote that I did not put in here, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. And I love the fact, I, and I've shared before, I'll share it again. I'm incredibly biased, and I should be, as a pastor of a church, that I believe every Christian should belong to a church. Um, if I'm really truthful, I say every Christian should belong to Summit Ridge, but I'm not, I've got to be more realistic. Um, and that, you know, we, we, we're, you know, we're a good church. We, not, we may just not be good for everyone. And we understand that. Um, and so, but I, I, I really truly believe, obviously, as I've shared before, I'll share it again, is that you do not need the church to become a Christian. All right. You do not need the church to, to all of a sudden get that, you know, to, to be a Christian. You don't have to be in a church to actually come to know Jesus. That can happen outside of the church. However, it is incredibly important I believe, to be a part of a church, to grow in our relationship in Jesus Christ and with each other. And the way I've heard this, um, uh, Tony Evans, uh, I, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but I'm going to try to do my best to paraphrase it. He says, yeah, you do not need to be home to be married. All right? In other words, if you're married, you don't have to be home all the time. It doesn't make you non-married. However, not being home all the time certainly will impact your marriage. Right? I think that's the same in many ways in church, is that, no, you don't need to be a part of a church to be a Christian. You certainly don't. But it will certainly, I believe, impact your relationship with Christ and with others by not being a part of one. And I'm, pre I'm preaching to the choir because you all are here today. 
So they're for people who are not here. Um, and, and so anyways, but here I want to share a quote by Charles Spurgeon about the importance of being part of a church. And he says this, I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. I love that. To some visible church, whether you call it brick and mortar or whatever else, a church that you can see people and actually be in, in community with others and worshiping with others. That is his plain duty according to the scriptures. God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one, but they are sheep, and therefore they should be in flocks. Right? Now, that being said, that being said, once we're a part of a church, here's where the real fun begins. And the real fun, if you want to call it fun, I do, um, it's really more of a challenge, is actually then being the church. And this is where it gets really, really difficult. I think being a church is simple, but not easy. It's simple, but not easy. Let me give you another quote by an author and pastor, Mark Hart. He says this. He says, the church needs more people willing to wash feet and not just point out they're dirty or complain that they smell. That's a real challenge as a church, is to serve others. Um, last week was the Super Bowl, right? Who cares? So it was the highest watched Super Bowl in modern history. I think that's more because Taylor Swift and all that kind of stuff was probably a part of it. Kansas City won, there's no surprise. Um, but that wasn't the controversial part of the Super Bowl. There was a commercial that was shown during the Super Bowl out of a much larger campaign called He Gets Us. And it was a foot-washing commercial. And for those of you who did not watch the game, which I was one of them who did not watch it, I saw the commercial later. I want to show you this commercial right now. It's a minute long. I want to show you this commercial, and then I want to share a little bit about what happened as a result of this commercial being shown during the Super Bowl. So let's take a look at this commercial real quick. Powerful commercial, amen? Yeah. It wasn't embraced, unfortunately, church, by every single Christian, particularly evangelical Christians, who saw this commercial. In fact, there was some controversy over this commercial. Can you believe this? Do you know what the controversy is? Here's the controversy. Is that Jesus washed people's feet, and then in doing so, perhaps he was condoning what they were doing or the lifestyle they were living. So there were some tweets that went out. I don't tweet. I'm not on X or whatever they call it now. Um, by some prominent pastors, one pastor wrote, yes, Jesus washed Judas's feet and then he promptly sent him to hell. In other words, church, as we, here's a challenge. Here's a challenge right here is that in order for us to be the church, is that we go out and we serve people, and it doesn't matter whom we serve. And that in doing so, we might be in our serving, communicating a message, oh, Jesus approves of what the choices you have made. Let me just say this, church, for anybody who's been a parent, or anybody who's been a child, for that matter, which I believe is all of us, okay? Your parents, or people who love you, will love you 
even if they don't approve of chances of the decisions you have made you may have made or whatever lifestyle you have chosen to live and they still can serve you sometimes i think evangelical some evangelical churches would love to have a little disclaimer like they do on drug commercials you know that those drug commercials that you hear you know about the new drug they're introducing and it can do this and then all they have that that long disclaimer this drug can cause eyes to grow on your nose or this this drug has been known to cause you to to all of a sudden sing hallelujah chorus at an in, inopportune time or you know all those ridiculous symptoms that could come with it i'm sure that they might be happy is if in commercials like this they would have it at the bottom jesus does not condone the choices you make or the lifestyle you have chosen but just know this he'll still wash your feet and could still send you to hell I, I want to make it clear to you, church. If a person walked through these doors, whether it be an illegal immigrant or someone who was perhaps cross-dressing and they needed help, I'm going to help them. Because they are made in God's image. They may not know it, but they are. I'm going to help them. Because Jesus, I believe, calls me to love my neighbor. And by the way, loving our neighbor, real quick, I've, I've shared this before, I'll share it again, but I know you all forget what I share. So <laughs> I, I understand that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being unrealistic. Um, by the way, neighbor in the Greek there is a proximity word. It is not necessarily a, 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 a standalone fixed location. It is a proximity. In other words, wherever we are, the people around us are our neighbors. Whatever context you find yourself in, those people around you are your neighbors at that moment. That's what that is communicating in the Greek. It's a proximity word. It is not a fixed location. And so I, I just share that because it just breaks my heart that even a commercial like this causes such controversy among particularly evangelicals of which we are a part of that vein of Christianity. It breaks my heart. And if I'm going to be charged with the, um, you know, the idea that I am condoning people because I'm loving on people and serving people, I'll carry that charge happily. I'll do it. It does not bother me. I will not lose sleep over it. Worrying about what another person is thinking about me just showing someone Jesus' love. As one person said, all we have to do, church... To be the church is to love the people that Jesus loved and we can hate everyone else. It's all we can do. So these are real challenges, church, of what I'm sharing here. I mean, even, I hope that you can see, even today, there are real challenges, right? There are real challenges. Our denomination last year struggled in a statement, a mission statement, over one word, diversity, in it. So much so that some of the sharing as to why that word was not to be included in our mission statement and those who were sharing it, not everyone, but many of them who were sharing it, did not even realize, perhaps, the fact that, that what they were communicating by not wanting that word in there, it was one of the most it was one of the most saddest, in my opinion, conversations to witness in the midst of our denomination in a long time. And it came out okay. It came out well. However, hearing 
from many of those who oppose just that one word diversity. Now, I get it. Everything's contextual. I understand that that word diversity can mean so many different things. And yet, the church is made up of a diverse people. More diverse than we probably want to know or even admit. I get that. We are naturally attracted and hang around people who are much like us. Look around this room, church. We are pretty homogeneous in our makeup. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And I just share that. I have a word today, if you can't figure it out, to share with you all. I have a message today I want to share with you all, and I'm beginning to share it here. Is that, is that we have to understand is that everyone is made in God's image. Everyone. Everyone. We are just one of the fortunate ones that know it. And the rest of the world needs to realize it. And that's a challenge. So today, as we look at the last challenge, this is going to be a fun one. And as we conclude this series, we're going to be facing and looking at a challenge that is, I believe, incredibly difficult because out of all the challenges that we have looked at throughout the series, this challenge is one that happens and it, it occurs before you even realize that it's happened and it's too late. It's a very, very subtle challenge that can happen in any church, particularly, I believe, certainly churches here in our country. And that is the challenge of playing church instead of being a church. And the church we're going to look at that was going through this, that was facing this challenge, was the church in Laodicea. And it's a, it's a, it, as we're going to discover, it's an incredibly fortunate church. Out of all of the churches that Jesus shares and gives a message to, this church, perhaps than any other, was perhaps in the most, in the most opportune, most perfect spot a church could ever be in. This is a, a place that this church was in that so many churches just wish they could have been in. And this church was in that position. And we're going to look at what Jesus shares about his concern for this church in the following verses in Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 22. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to go back and break it down. Does that make sense? So let's take a look. And this is why I want us to understand this church, because I think this can also happen here at Summit Ridge, what happened here at this church in Laodicea. So here is what Jesus says to this church in Laodicea. And he starts off with this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. It's interesting. There are some thoughts about what that angel is. And he says it in almost every single message he gives to the seven churches. The angel could have been the leader of that church, the pastor of that church. It could have been actually an angel who's overseeing that church, whatever. I, perhaps it is the pastor. Here's nonetheless what Jesus says. This is the solemn pronouncement of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. This is Jesus speaking, in other words. I'm speaking, all right? Um, I'm the true witness. I'm the, I'm the one who created everything. And this is what he has said throughout many of the messages we've already heard before. This is what he says now to this church. I know your deeds. Jesus knows his church. He knows his churches. He knows what they do. He is very much involved. It is not missed on Jesus what happens in churches all around this world. And this is affirmed by almost every single message he has given so far to every single one of these churches, including this one here. And he goes on and he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, 
I'm going to vomit you, not just spit. Some of your translations might say spit. That's a nice, cozy, you know, kind of, you know, innocent word to use. It makes us, okay, I, I, I can spit. No, no. He says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Harsh. Because you say I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me refined by fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. And buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hey, by the way, I haven't highlighted this. I'm going to highlight it here at the end. Did you realize that out of all the seven messages, it almost always ends the same? Let him who has, hear, has ears rather, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. In other words, most likely what happened is that when these messages were written, they were circulated among the seven churches. In other words... Everything that was said about each other's church was now shared with everyone else. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine that. I mean, that's what was going on here, most likely. Now, here's the thing. This is one of the few messages, in fact, this is probably the only message, Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. Nothing. In the other parts of churches that he was disciplining, at least he would say, I, I, I love the fact that you are faithful to my word. And that you are faithful to wanting to make sure that what you are doing is good and proper. And, and, but this church, he has nothing good to say about this church. Now, this church in Laodicea, Laodicea was a, a city in western Turkey. Um, it was at the, the crossroads of a busy trade intersection. So this the city just benefited immensely from the trade that happened. And as a result, became an incredibly wealthy city as a result of the fact that where they were positioned. And in fact, it is the wealthiest of the seven cities that was addressed in Revelation. It was a banking center whose banks, even Cicero, recommended for exchanging money. So it was a major banking center. Cicero was emperor. It manufactured clothing and woolen carpets made especially from the glossy black wool of sheep. It had a huge medical school and produced medicines, notably an eye ointment made from uh, pulverized rock. Um, and it was one that was you know, that was just a fond place that, was, that you wanted to be in. It was incredibly wealthy, this city. This city lacked for nothing. In fact, when an earthquake struck and, and demolished much of the city, Rome wanted to come in. They said, no, no, we got this. We have enough money. We can rebuild it ourselves. And they did. That's how wealthy this city 
was. And so you can understand by many of the things that it engaged in, such as a medical school, producing eye ointment and all that kind of stuff, that Jesus is using those analogies to describe this church. This is, in other words, as this church is reading this letter, it knows very well what Jesus is saying based on the fact that, oh yeah, yeah, we develop oil, eye ointment here. Oh yeah, 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 we're very, very wealthy. Oh yeah, we produce all sorts of clothing and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, he's playing right into what this city is known for. Now, how about this church? Whew. What was this church known for? Well, this church was lukewarm. Lukewarm. It was apathetic, lacking faith, had little reliance on God, most likely because it was wealthy. It had everything it needed and more. The terms cold, hot, and lukewarm are also likely related to waters around Laodicea. Because here was interesting. There was um, a, another city near it that was known for its hot springs. And Colossae was also a city near it that was noted, noted for its cold, clear stream of excellent drinking water. However, the river that was located near Laodicea would oftentimes dry up in the summer. And so Laodicea had to use a long aqueduct for its water, which by the time it reached the city was lukewarm. It was tepid. And where it had gone through, it was not necessarily safe to drink. It could make you sick. And so Jesus is using that reality to describe to them, this is who you are. And if I drink you, I want to vomit you out because it's disgusting. This church was lukewarm because it had everything it needed. And when you have everything you need, why do you need Jesus? When everything is there for you and you are self-sufficient and you th see nothing else that you need, that you have everything you want and more, why do you need Jesus? And not only that, it had perhaps spiritual pride. The church considered itself wealthy and rich, needing nothing. And not only that, spiritual pride also produces a little judgmentalism. At others. So you could almost... Almost imagine, as they were reading the other letters of these other churches who were not in wealthy areas, of them saying, oh man, they, they done messed up down there. I mean, God must be punishing them because they are poor and they're struggling and they're facing persecution and all of this stuff. You could almost imagine some of the perhaps um, things that they may have been saying amongst themselves, only to find out, wait a minute, they're the ones who may actually be poor, naked, blind can't see all those things here's another thing that probably marked this church they were in they don't need christ at least not in the ways that these other churches and most of us who follow jesus might need him they were probably selfish they focused on wealth and culture and and it most likely kept them from actually living a life that was fully dedicated to jesus they were probably spiritually blind as a result of their apathy they were claiming to be rich, blessed, and self-sufficient, but completely oblivious as to what their state really was. They were self-sufficient, probably materialistic, and probably had divergent affections. They were easily swayed by the life around them, the wealth, the influence, even the politics became part of the culture as a result. I mean, that was this church, this church that and I'm sure it didn't start out that way. I'm sure this church that was planted most likely by a follower of Paul um, be, was planted 
to reach these people for Jesus Christ. But here's the thing when it comes to wealth oftentimes and influence is that it begins to take you over rather than you taking it over. It's very easy to get comfortable. And when we get comfortable, we can become complacent. Now, it's interesting that word complacent in the Hebrew is literally becoming rigid, becoming congealed, becoming stuck. That's what it's, it kind of gives that analogy of being just stuck in one place. You can't see anything else. You don't want to do anything else. You believe what you believe, and that's what I believe, and there'll be nothing more that I will need to believe except this. You're not open to hearing anything else. Self-sufficiency produces an incredible amount of pride and, and, and a belief that I am right and you are wrong. And hearing any sort of correction would be very, very difficult. That's perhaps what was overtaking this church. And Jesus doesn't mince words. He has nothing nice to say about this church. This church is stuck and it doesn't know it. It believes because it is wealthy and has everything it needs that God has blessed this church, that God has honored this church, that God says, you are a shining example of what my churches should be. And instead, he comes and gives them the exact opposite. How do you think this was probably received? We would hope that it would be received in a way that says, oh my gosh, Jesus has spoke to us. But let's be honest, church, right? How many of us have ever thought, boy, I wish Jesus would come and speak to that person because if they did, if Jesus did, that person would immediately change. I've got news for you. That doesn't always happen. Doesn't always happen. Jesus gave a parable to kind of highlight that. There was a story about Lazarus, not the Lazarus he raised from the dead. That's not a parable that actually happened. This was a story about Lazarus who was a, 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 a poor person who sat at the entranceway of a very rich person. And every day he just wanted some scraps to eat, and he wouldn't, and the dogs would come and lick his wounds, and it was, a, it was just horrible. And then they both died, and one went to be with Abraham, and the other went to hell. And the wealthy man who discovered, oh my gosh, this is not good, he begged Abraham, send prophets to tell my brothers and my sisters and my family and all them about what they should do, that they should not believe what I believed and do what I did. And Abraham said, it's too late. If someone were to show up in person now, they wouldn't believe it anyways. They have everything they need. It's tough. Wealth produces a certain sense of not being able to hear when we might be off track. Because we're wealthy. Now, I want to share this. This is going to be an interesting quote. Go with me on this. <clears throat> but I think... It's from a historian, a late historian, a historian of the 18th century, um, 19th century, around those areas. He said this about a kind of talking about the life cycle of nations. But I want to just, the reason why I share this quote is because I think this also describes the life cycle of a church. We're not careful. He says this, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations have been 200 years. I don't have this quote on screen, so this is an off-road one. So these nations have progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency 
back to bondage. That might describe civilizations, but I think it certainly could describe a church. I've shared this out of the seven messages. I believe two of the biggest challenges that I see out of the seven messages that face churches here today, evangelical churches, perhaps even our church. I'm not saying our church specifically, may not be at all. The two issues that I see that, could, that, that I think are the biggest challenges today for evangelical churches are this. One is political idolatry. I talked about that several weeks ago. Political idolatry, the quest for power. Really big challenge. Here's the second one, complacency. Complacency. Let me tell you why. A couple of stats I want to throw at you. Um, I came across this. The latest church revenue stats show that religious congregations in the U.S. take around $74.5 billion per year. $74.5 billion are given to churches in this country every single year. That's staggering. That is staggering. Think about that for a minute. That's huge. Around 17 million Americans also visit the official websites of their churches regularly to stream, to give, or, or, or otherwise. Faith and religious institutions and services get more than twice the donations in the U.S. compared to the education sector. And here's, the, here's another one. Out of every $4 people in the U.S. donate, $3 is given to religious organizations. Now, this is not a message of don't give to Summit Ridge. <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. We're not one of those that's seen the billions. I'll guarantee you that. Okay? Jesus has sought to keep us humble, brothers and sisters. And he has done a well, well, good job of doing that. <laughs> okay? But that doesn't... Oh, and by the way, out of all those, it's tax-free. Churches don't pay a dime on that stuff. Churches have some of the best real estate in this country. You don't believe me? How many of you have been to Sedona and have seen the, the, the church that's built in the rock there? That's a, it's a tourist destination along with the source, which is my own personal opinion. It's a beautiful, beautiful structure. Absolutely gorgeous. My family and I, we went to the, um, in Colorado Springs, the, uh, the uh, Air Force there, that the base, the, 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 the school there. Have you ever been in the chapel there? It's, it's hard to call it. It's really a cathedral. It's just gorgeous, the view of the mountains there. That's at the Air Force Academy. I mean, it's just absolutely, it's interesting. You go in there. Of course, they have the Protestant section. That's the biggest section. That's the one that gets the, the views. Then you go in the basement. There's the synagogue, and then there's the Catholic church section. And it's really quite a statement, if you ask me. <laughs> but in it, it, those churches that had those beautiful locations, almost all, they pay no taxes on it. We may not have a lot of money that we get in here at Summit Ridge, but that does not make us poor either. Churches in America, for the most part, are incredibly wealthy churches. We are. And that's why perhaps this makes us more than anything or any other church in this world 
susceptible to being complacent, to being rigid, to being stuck in what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And nothing or no one is going to change that. And we are not open to hearing perhaps anything different than what affirms what we already believe. Amen? Shouldn't say amen to that. It's a test. <laughs> I'll pray for you all. Um, A.W. Tozer said this about complacency. Complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. John Stott went even further and he said this, we need to repent of the haughty way in which we sometimes stand in judgment upon scripture and must learn to sit humbly under its judgments instead. If we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts, and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us, and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. When's the last time you ever came across a passage in Scripture that you thought, well, that's what I already believe, I'm glad it affirms what I believe? Instead, you came across it and said, I have never, ever saw this before. And I am convicted. This has wrecked my world. I thought I had it figured out. You know what I find unfortunate? Is that there are many churches and pastors and, and Christians today, and I just speak evangelical Christians because that's the pool I swim in, who have so settled on their theology that they spend the rest of their life defending it. And not being open to the fact that maybe God is trying to expose them to more of who he is and showing them an aspect of who he is and maybe who they are and understanding that perhaps I need to be convicted in this. When's the last time you have come across a passage of scripture that thoroughly wrecked you and you couldn't make sense of it? And whatever you had as a belief system that this passage now has in some ways caused a kind of disruption or almost a tearing down of that belief system. And what have you done in response? Maybe go to someone and say, can you just affirm the belief I already have about this passage and help me explain this passage away? <laughs> Pastor. I'm I'm When's the last time you all read your Bible in such a way that you said, Lord Jesus, just speak to me. I just... Whatever it is that you want to say, I want to be open to what it is that you're saying to me. And may I be open to the leading of your spirit. And, and even if it may cause me to change what I may have come to this passage already believing about it. Convict me. Change me. Do not make me complacent and think I have it all figured out and I get to read this simple passage again and look at it and say, yeah, I got this thing all figured out. You know, I, you... This is the third time I've preached through these seven letters at this church. The third time. I haven't preached through the book of Revelation yet, but sure, I've preached through these seven things. I'm getting kind of tired of it. The last time I preached it was 2021. And you remember that? Of course you don't. <laughs> I do. But you know what's amazing? I haven't preached the same message yet. I have been convicted 
in these messages. My prayer every time I preach is I say this, and I preach it on Sunday morning, I preach it on Saturday, I preach it on Thursday, I preach it on Wednesday, I preach it on Tuesday, I preach it on Monday, you get the picture. And it's this, dear Lord Jesus, as I prepare this message, I pray that through the movement of your spirit that I would understand more of who you are in this passage and that the words that I write would be your words, the thoughts that I have would be your thoughts, and I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would move among those who will hear this message and be convicted, starting with me first. Change my heart first. Every, nearly every single time I pray that message, as I'm preparing, or prayer rather, as I'm preparing this uh, a message, whether it's this one or others, it needs to change me first. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. I do not want to be a part of a church that is complacent, that has arrived. That means, guess what? It's going to get messy if you haven't already discovered it. That means it's going to get frustrating. That means we're going to look at things in the Bible here, in Scripture, Passages that you and I are probably familiar with and probably think we have down pat that all of a sudden now Jesus, through the movement of his spirit, may be bringing out and saying, oh, wait a minute, did you think about this? Nope. Hadn't thought about it that way. Brothers and sisters, I don't ever want us to come to this book and say, yeah, I've, I've read that, Dan, I've got that all figured out by now. I think that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. And as a church here in this country, or any other church in this country, evangelical or otherwise, it can be incredibly tempting for us to slide into complacency because we are so fortunate. We are so blessed. We, I mean, there are Christians around the world who are probably in some ways in, envious of us because of the fact that we have so many resources. Even a small church like us, we've got flat screen color TVs up here. We've got accent lighting. We've got beautiful cameras to stream online. We've got a very beautiful building here. Why? I clean it for the past several weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's coming to an end. That's not the best use of my time. I said I would do it for a little while. Why do I want to click? Because sometimes I care about this, and this is a major, major source of ministry for us in our community. Five or six groups throughout the week meet in this building. This building is rarely vacant, and it's rarely used by us during the week. It's just that you will never see bathrooms as clean as you see them now, church. <laughs> I don't mean to toot my own horn. I just, I just want to share with you, I don't want to be a part of a church that is complacent. And you know what part of me does? Part of me says, oh, Jesus, can you just please give us enough money where we don't have to think about money? Lord Jesus, can you just, can this week be the week that we get a million dollars in? Don't have to worry about a salary anymore. Don't have to worry about nothing anymore. And Jesus has never honored that prayer. <laughs> Ever. Ever. That's great because you know why? Keeps us on our toes. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. This church needs Jesus. Now that doesn't mean shortchange your offering, brothers and sisters. 
That's not for us to decide whether or not we need Jesus need, can decide that. That's, I'm just, I have to always preface this, okay? Um, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, pastor said I don't have to give anymore. That's not what I'm saying. Um, here's the other thing, is that, um, and I'm going to just hint a little bit, we'll, we'll flesh this out in the coming weeks and months. Um, there's been a team of us that have been working through what's called an adaptive leadership cohort in which we've been doing things and learning about trying to figure out our next steps as a church and we're just trying to always make sure we're doing what Jesus wants us to do. And here was our aha moment. After our time back in January, we did this um, discovery game night. Many of you were part of that, had a great turnout for that. And we were evaluating how we came out of this. And you know what our aha moment was? We need to get back doing what we believe Jesus has called us to do. And that is to make disciples by serving Christ, by serving people. We need to get back in serving people in our community and washing their feet and doing the things that Jesus has called us to do by loving our neighbors in the ways that he has called us to love our neighbors. In other words, we need to once again grasp that vision, that mission, and our core values are still the same. And that was so evident from many of us who are part of that, whether or not you realize we are evaluating that, as well as just being a part of going out there and serving. We are serious about this. We need to reclaim that again. That's hard. Because the need is always there. And we can't do it all. Only Jesus can. But we can play a small but significant role nonetheless. But it starts with us realizing we need Jesus. It starts with us realizing, Jesus, you need to be the one moving us. Jesus, you need to be the one showing us. Jesus, you need to be the one through the movement of your spirit to convict us, to show us, to call us, and to inspire us to go and do these things because these things are hard and it's not easy and I'd rather just stay here in our building, nice clean building, by the way, and, and, and just sit in these chairs and, and, and just... And just be able to just soak in what the pastors are sharing and, and, and sing and worship and go out there and have wonderful snacks and do all that. And then go home and then go out to lunch or whatever it is I do with our family and friends afterwards. And then go and live my week and then repeat it all over again. I like my little small life. And Jesus may be saying no. So my question to all of you this morning is this. Are you stuck like this church in Laodicea was. Are you stuck? And by the way, here's how you might know if you're stuck. If you think you have it figured out, if you think that you're saying to yourself, Dan, I've heard this before. I've heard these messages before. I've read this passages before. Chances are you might be stuck. Here's another re reason why you might be stuck or another tall tale sign. If you have things figured out, if your theology is all worked through and you have Jesus figured out and you have him in this little box and Jesus doesn't ever go outside of that box, he doesn't ever color outside of those lines and, and you might be complacent. If you have not had a scripture passage convict you as you have been reading it and totally wreck your world at times, chances are you may be complacent. I don't know. That's between you and Jesus. Let today be a day where we say enough. Let today be a day where we say we're not going to fall for this. We can be comfortable, we can be safe, and we can be secure, but Jesus may be saying, I need you to come with me. Let us be the day today that we say, Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow you. And let us resist 
the temptation of being complacent. Amen? Pray with me, please. Father, I am so grateful, Jesus, that you love your churches so much that you would even discipline them. That you care so much that you would even say to churches, whether it's in Revelation or even to us today, that if we are complacent, if we are stuck, if we are not doing what you are calling us to do and we have become comfortable, Father, I pray that you would show us, that you would break that, that we would become so uncomfortable, so convicted, that perhaps the only way, the only place we could turn, Jesus, is to you to make sense of any of it. Jesus, I want to pray Perhaps maybe a dangerous prayer, Jesus, but I pray it nonetheless. I pray, Lord, that if we need to be challenged today, that you would challenge us. If we need to be wrecked today, that you would wreck us. If we need to be convicted today, that you would convict us so that we would not be complacent or stuck. Jesus, thank you so much that your spirit continues to move in this world, continues to change hearts and lives. And I pray, Jesus, that we would be sensitive to that, movement of your spirit and more than that that would follow you and in doing so father that we would never ever be complacent but recognize in every single thing that we do and what you call us to do that we need you first and foremost in our lives and in this church jesus it's your holy and precious name we pray and all of god's people said amen